Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and we're here to take stock of where the airline industry is after a somewhat turbulent first four months of the year. And Ben Baldanza, I want to start with a reminder that is weighing heavily on my heart. Evan Gershkovich, my colleague at my former employer, the Wall Street Journal, has now been imprisoned in Russia for more than a month for simply being an American and for telling people what is going on. We have the freedom to bring you news and insight and opinion without fear of imprisonment on Airlines Confidential. Let's not forget that Evan was doing the same thing for all of us, and now he's in a prison. Hello, Scott. It's important to keep Evan's situation in the news, and thanks for that reminder. We all hope he is free and back home soon. And to the airline news, Ben, we had a final round of first quarter financial results this week, and it seems that American Airlines should get a prize for something. I'm not sure what, but American eked out a profit of $10 million. That's no big deal for such a big company, but most of Americans' peers had losses in the first three months of the year. So American gets the crown. It's just a temporary paper crown. American had some other good news, too. It said that its completion factor, the percentage of flights it flew in its schedule without cancellation, was the highest in its history. Americans' history technically only goes back to 2013 when AMR and U.S. Airways combined into American Airlines Group. But still, given the many recent years of weak operational reliability, I think that's significant. American also claimed it was first in on-time departures among the nine largest U.S. airlines. We'll see if that holds up this summer. But it does show once again that running on-time is more profitable than running late. Delays and cancellations are expensive. They sure are, Scott. Now, do you remember that legal joke that if the facts are on your side, pound the facts? If the facts aren't on your side, pound the table? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, in a way, I think that's kind of what AMR is doing. The airline version of that joke is when you have great earnings, pound the earnings. If you don't have good earnings, pound how good your operations are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think that while American made a profit, almost a break even for them, that is good. I think some of that is because even though American has plenty of international routes, as a percentage of what they do, it's not as big as Delta or United does, the international flying, I mean. And we all know that the U.S. market has been more robust than many of the international markets. That probably, on a relative basis, helped AMR. Also, 
unlike at least Delta, I'm not sure how much this affected United, Americans probably not catching up a bunch of pilot costs yet until they ultimately agree with a new deal and have to catch up their pilots as well. So with those things said about AMR, Southwest Airlines reported a net loss of $159 million. CEO Bob Jordan said that included a $294 million after-tax loss related to the December meltdown. That came from cancellation of holiday return travel after January 1, So part of this year's first quarter and slower bookings in January and February. In the fourth quarter, Southwest had after-tax losses from the Christmas travel disruption of $620 million. So the final tally on the trouble looks like it cost the company almost a billion dollars, certainly more than $900 million. It also means, however, that if they really think that the December-related impact on the first quarter was 294 and they lost 159, they're saying that but for the December disruptions, they might have had a fairly reasonable quarter this time. And that has to make people at Southwest feel a little better, I think. Southwest also said it now expects to take delivery of 70 airplanes from Boeing this year, down from 90. The delivery delays mean the airline has to cut flights from its schedule, most notably in the fourth quarter, which is a busy travel period, especially for Southwest. Capacity this year will increase 14 to 15% which is one percentage point lower than Southwest's previous estimate. So they're still growing quite a bit, but not quite as much as they thought they were going to. It's interesting, Scott, because most airlines were reporting pretty solid revenue increases in the first quarter. Costs were higher, and of course, last year was much weaker for revenue but they all said they were seeing strong bookings for the summer. Even though there's a lot of uncertainty in the economy and more and more layoff announcements, people are still traveling. So as we've been saying, it looks like the industry is getting ready for what should be a very busy summer. But given that it's almost May, that summer is starting really soon, So it has to start showing up in the bookings and the revenue almost right away. Yeah, it's so interesting, Ben. I think the other interesting thing about American is, you know, when when the pandemic started, American uh, decided it was going to fly more than other airlines and it was going to fly to leisure destinations. And and we kind of wondered, hey, what are you doing? Are you just trying to win the pandemic you know, Delta was blocking middle seats and and really uh, shutting down its network because uh, largely because business travelers, among others, didn't want to fly. Um, and it's an interesting result coming out of the pandemic 
where I think American, because they did so much flying in the pandemic to leisure destinations, they're maybe enjoying uh, more robust leisure travel than some of the competitors. Delta and maybe United are feeling the loss of business travel perhaps more than American is right now. We'll see how that shapes up long term. And also with Southwest, you're absolutely right. They would have been profitable absent the December meltdown. But that's a little bit like saying I'd be skinny if not for the extra pounds I have. It will be interesting to see if if Southwest can run a clean operation. They're about to cross 800 airplanes if they haven't already done that. And uh, and so that's the, the real question going forward. Is this going to be part of their deal um, where they have disruptions and costs from that? Or can they put that all behind them and, uh, and really start making a lot of money again? And Ben, since I said we were going to take stock, I went a little deeper on the first quarter and looked at winners and losers in airline stocks. Wall Street does a pretty good job of figuring out which airlines are doing well and which carriers are lagging, and it's interesting. American, the one big airline with a small first quarter profit, had the worst stock performance for April among the 10 airlines I looked at. American shares lost 7.5% of their value in the month. That was a bigger decline than Southwest. You'd think the big disaster would make Southwest the biggest loser, but no. Americans' revenue gains haven't been as strong as other airlines, and maybe that's because it's so much leisure-focused, as we talked about, and Americans certainly faces higher labor costs in the future that Delta and United are already accounting for, and perhaps Wall Street is accounting for, too. The biggest winner in April was Allegiant, by the way. Allegiant stock was up 13% for the month. The only other airline with a positive gain for April was Alaska Airlines. Hat tip to Alaska. Year to date is even more interesting. Allegiant is again the biggest winner, up a whopping 53%. Oh my, in this market, that kind of gain really stands out. The S&P 500 was up 9% for the first four months of the year. Sun Country, too, was a big winner, up 24%. So what about the big boys? United is the year-to-date winner, up 16% through the end of April. American was up 7% year-to-date, and Delta, first out with that big pilot contract, was up only 4.4%. And here we go again with the business travel impact. Here you really do see the impact of the Southwest problem, too. Southwest shares are down 10% year-to-date. A lot of that hit came in January and February. And last week with the first quarter loss, a lot of that hit came in January and February and last week with the first quarter loss. And just for grins, I went back further. American shares peaked above $58 a share at the start of 2018. Since then, they are down 77%. Ouch. Both Delta and United are down about 40% over the same period roughly half the decline American has seen. Southwest would be about the same had it not imploded in December. Southwest shares are down about 50% from January 2018. And to make those declines even more painful, the S&P 500 is up almost 50% over the same period 
And those airlines are down 40% and 50% and 77%. So Ben, the biggest airline, American, is the biggest loser over the last five plus years. Is the good showing for the first quarter this year a sign of a turnaround in Americans' fortunes or not? Well, if you remember, Scott, when we had Phil Ordway on the show a couple weeks ago, we asked him whether or not the industry would get back the values that it had pre-pandemic because of exactly what you're talking about. Stocks have not been friendly to any of the airlines, really. Now, when this industry zigs, often Allegiant zags. So the yeah. fact that Allegiant's up doesn't say as much about the industry as a total, but says how different they really are from everyone else. And there are people who might more regularly be invested in an airline like American and United that says, but for now, maybe I'll invest in an Allegiant who knows how to make money in an all-leisure scenario. So it's an interesting world we're in, and certainly investors have to have ice in their veins if they're going to be long holders in the industry right now, Scott. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, in other news, there's news close to my home in Washington. A coalition backed by Delta Airlines is pushing Congress to add more long-haul domestic flights from Washington Reagan Airport. A 1,250-mile perimeter rule limits flights from DCA, but there are exceptions that have been made over the years. Now the Capital Access Alliance is pushing more in the FAA reauthorization legislation. They got Boston Consulting Group to produce a study saying Washington Dulles International Airport doesn't need protecting anymore since the population of Northern Virginia has grown so much. San Antonio and San Diego, the nation's seventh and eighth largest cities, don't have direct flights to Reagan National. Boston Consulting recommends 20 to 25 additional long-haul flights from DCA. Capitol Hill Watcher Punchbowl News notes that Delta has hired a lobbyist named Jeff Miller, who is a close friend of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. That probably increases the chances this will happen. You know, Scott, one of the things I do in my college class is I ask my students if they think slot controls at Reagan and a perimeter rule at Reagan are somewhat overlapping regulations. And if you limit the total number of flights, should you also limit how far they go? And it's very interesting to see what my students often think about that. That's very interesting. What do you think about that? Well, you know, years ago, when airplanes were a lot louder, you could argue that a plane going to L.A., for example, from Reagan, made a lot more noise than one going to Pittsburgh. You can't make that argument anymore with newer aircraft. 
So my view is if you're going to limit the number of flights, why do you care how far they fly? Now, Reagan doesn't have customs, so I'm not saying they should add a customs facility and allow flights to London or Tokyo or something. But there's no difference to the local community if the flight's going to Chicago, which is in the perimeter, or going to Portland, Oregon, which is outside the perimeter, or San Antonio. So either limit the number of flights or how far they can go. But I think both are a bit duplicative. Yeah, I think I think actually they're they're addressing different problems, right? You create slot limits because of congestion at the airport. Uh, you don't want you don't want gridlock, and uh, and so you limit the number of flights. But then you have a scarce resource, and if you have a scarce resource, you ought to get the most use out of it you possibly can. With the perimeter rule, you end up with a lot of small airplanes going to small places that are close by, and that's not the best use of that scarce resource. So I think they're, you know, they're serving different purposes, and I don't see the reason for a perimeter rule if you already have slot restrictions. You're not worried about the number of flights there, um, and as you say, it doesn't really matter where they're going. I think the, the I don't think Dulles Airport needs protection anymore. Just like I don't think uh, Dallas Fort Worth needed protection from the Right Amendment uh, from from Love Field. I think it's uh, similar in many ways to the Love Field situation. Both Love Field and Dallas Fort Worth have thrived once the restriction was lifted in Dallas. I think you'd see the same thing in Washington. I agree, Scott, and I think it's interesting that BCG pointed out that Dulles doesn't need that protection anymore, suggesting that the perimeter rule, to some extent, was a political give to Dulles to allow that airport to grow without as much competition. Yeah, you always, with with DCA, you're always going to have the problem of Congressman so-and-so wants a direct flight to his hometown, right? So the Knoxville, Tennessee's or wherever, um, they're going to have a hard, harder time getting those nonstop flights to the nation's capital um, when airlines can fly more often to LAX or, or other West Coast places uh, or Phoenix or San Diego or Seattle or wherever. But that's a bit of a different problem um, in terms of congressional <laughs> access and, and uh, congressional gifts. I think in, in this case, uh, you, you ought to just take, take away the restrictions and let the market decide. So, Scott, I have a challenge for our listeners if they want to take it. Without using the Internet on this one now, at one point when I worked for U.S. Airways, before it merged with American, we served eight cities in West Virginia and 15 cities in Pennsylvania from DCA, speaking of short, all fine. Yeah. And, and not necessarily the best use of constrained resources at DCA. Let's see if anyone can come up with the 15 Pennsylvania cities and eight West Virginia cities that U.S. Airways served without using the internet. 
<laughs> That's awesome, Ben. Um, send send your answers in, uh, airlinesconfidential.com, and, and we'll have fun with that on the air. Ben, one other news item of note. Skift had a story this week pointing out that Vasu Raja, American's chief commercial officer, mentioned on the company's earning call that yields on blended travel were higher than yields on corporate travel, 8 to 10% higher. American says blended travel, trips that combine obvious business days with weekend leisure stays, now make up 35% of its bookings. That's gone way up with the share of corporate bookings going down. But that's okay, American says. Those blended travelers are paying higher fares. One other note with that, Vasu said American recorded 60% more new advantage frequent flyer accounts than four years earlier. He credits that to the rise of blended travelers too. I'm not sure the revenue picture for American is as rosy as Vasu paints it with blended travel over corporate travel. And one of American's long-term issues is that it is at a revenue disadvantage to Delta and United. But I think the bottom line is a refrain you and I both heard at the Duke Travel Summit last month. It doesn't matter how you label travelers anymore. Leisure, corporate, or blended, it just doesn't matter. Everyone's paying the same fares. The days of the $2,000 business trip and the $200 leisure trip are gone. Everyone's paying four or $500 a ticket for a domestic trip. It's hard to put labels on travelers these days, but we heard some smart airline folks saying, don't bother, just get over it. These are all just passengers. I think that's right, Scott. Another thing that came out of that summit that was interesting is what it really means to be a blended traveler. Is that someone traveling for business who stays a few extra days for a leisure extension? Or is it someone who travels on a leisure trip but takes more time at their leisure destination because they can also get some work done since they would be working from home anyway? But to the point, does it really matter? It's probably both those things. And so looking at what people are paying, what the mix of travelers are, I think it's clear that the pre-pandemic groupings that we all used to put passengers in aren't as relevant as they used to be. Well said. Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. This week's show is brought to you by Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we want to thank Pratt & Whitney, a leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system 
delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependability and world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Airlines Confidential continues with our guest, Tom Doxey, who's president of Breeze Airways. Tom previously was at United, Allegiant, and U.S. Airways. As our listeners know, Breeze is David Nealman's latest airline startup, a low-cost carrier offering nonstop flights in secondary markets not served by big airlines. Breeze flies the Airbus A220, a plane known for passenger comfort. It will close in on its second anniversary at the end of May and has grown from 16 destinations to nearly 40 so far with 130 nonstop routes. Tom, great to have you with us. Really looking forward to this. Tell us how you got started in aviation and found your way to Breeze. Well, it's great to be here with you, Scott and Ben. Um, I actually started, as you mentioned, at the old America West U.S. Airways in Phoenix, uh, working in, in finance primarily there. A few years later, I transitioned to uh, Allegiant, which is in my hometown of Las Vegas, where I was born and raised. There are not too many of us who were born and raised there. Uh, and I was there for about seven or eight years, uh, worked with a lot of really great folks. Uh, Jude Bricker, who's now heading up Sun Country, uh, Andrew Levy, who's heading up Avalo, you know, some folks that are still there. Maury, of course, Greg Anderson and Robert Neal, who are running uh, the airline there. And then several people who I work with today at Breeze, Trent Porter, who's our CFO, uh, Lucas Johnson, who's our chief commercial officer. So, you know, a lot of real great friendships that continue to this day. Uh, after Allegiant, I headed to United and uh, did a couple of things there. I was the operations CFO and uh, ran the fleet team for a bit of time. And then my, my last job there, I absolutely loved, which was a bit of a departure from what I had done in a lot of my prior roles, but I ran the tech ops team there. And that was what I did during the pandemic, which was just a, a fascinating experience with a lot of amazing people. Uh, once, you, once you're in the tech ops family, you're, you're tech ops for life, and, and I'm, I'm proud to be so. And then, as you mentioned, I've been at Breeze now for the past year or so. Uh, we've got a phenomenal team here and really excited about what we're doing. And I'm excited to be here with the both of you to talk a little bit about it today. Well, thanks for being here again, Tom. David Nealman was very kind to come on our show and talk about Breeze right when the carrier started. So why don't you catch us up on what Breeze has been up to for the last year or year and a half? Well, we're closing in on our second anniversary, second anniversary of the first flight. That'll happen at the end of May. Uh, the trivia would be that first flight was from Tampa to Charleston. And it's, it's been fascinating to be here the last year and to build on the successes that the team that was in place uh, had, had built uh, as they were putting this airline together. You know, we call ourselves the nice low-cost carrier. I think we're defining a new category of airline, one that comes with convenience, with flexibility, uh, and, and an elevated level of service. I think, um, you know, that David Nealeman touch, phenomenal, phenomenal people. Uh, our tagline is seriously nice. It feels nice when you get on the airplane. You know, first and foremost, I think that's about our people. They're incredible. And so many of them are here because they're excited about building something new, building something unique. 
but then there's just the offering that we give to our guests. We're generally flying from small and mid-sized airports and going directly to places that people want to go on vacation. So no busy hubs, no risky connections. Uh, you know, these airports are convenient. The parking's cheaper. TSA lines are shorter. It's typically closer to their homes. Um, nonstop or what we call breeze through, which is one stop without a plane change. And then flexible policies, things like you can change or cancel your flights without fees up until right before boarding. Families can sit together for free. When I heard President Biden say that in the uh, State of the Union address a couple of months ago, I texted our team and said, well, you know, good news, we're already doing that. And we've seen a couple of airlines follow suit uh, just in the last couple of months. And then the last thing, as you mentioned, is the great airplane. You know, primarily our scheduled service guests are on the A220, which has, you know, big seats, big windows, big bins. We have Wi-Fi in a couple of them and we'll be rolling Wi-Fi out uh, as we go through the rest of this year. But this this offering that we have that's just convenient and I think unique uh, versus what you'd get in a lot of these smaller cities if you did what people previously did, which is fly typically on a network carrier on a small airplane and connect in a busy hub and then go where you wanted to go. And of course, typically that was uh, set up for business travelers and the pricing was set up for business travelers. And you know, we do it differently. We fly them right to where they want to go with everything I just described. So just really, really excited about, about where we are, what we've done so far and where we're headed. So Tom, what role do you see Breeze playing in North American aviation sector? Um, I, I'm curious, there's been so much reduction in service at small and medium-sized markets by the big airlines. Is that the opportunity you're capitalizing on? I think what's interesting, Scott, is that the the business was set up before that situation reached the point that it is today. The team at that time felt that there was tremendous opportunity to take the A220 and to use that to fly from underserved cities uh, to places that people wanted to go on vacation. Since that time, and this is largely a function of the U.S. pilot shortage, We've seen complete reduction, elimination of service to some small cities. Uh, I, I think there's one carrier that's that's eliminated service to, to like 40 different cities. Um, and, and I think when you combine all the big carriers together, it's something more like 70. And, and then there are a lot of other cities that just have seen a reduction in service. And so uh, while, while the airline wasn't set up to capture that, the fact that that is now happening has created a tremendous opportunity for us. I think Huntsville, Alabama is a great example. I was I was there maybe about six months ago. Over the last decade, they've seen a 20% increase in population, but they have less air service today than they had a decade ago. And that just creates a tremendous opportunity. And as I mentioned before, we're doing it differently. Um, you know, they no longer are going to need to drive to Nashville two hours away or three plus hours away to Atlanta to get to Las Vegas. Uh, we're going to have a, a flight. We do have a flight that just goes goes directly there. So it saves them time. Uh, and, and it's a big deal when in, in a city of that size, we're adding these destinations because it's the places where everybody wanted to go. So as far as what role we play, we felt that that opportunity was huge anyway. But now in this new environment that we're in, the opportunity has increased exponentially for us. Hmm. Tom, the A220 is a great airplane, and it has great legs, too. Does that put pressure on you to add more long-haul service just because the plane can do it? 
because it would also be really good popping up and down too. Right. We, we do, we do both. Um, it's certainly because of the takeoff performance and because of the range that that airplane has and the comfort, uh, for the longer flights, uh, we, we can and do fly longer stage length flights. You know, a great example, we're, we're going to be launching Providence, Rhode Island to LAX in the month of May. Uh, I'll be on that launch flight. Uh, that I believe will be our longest flight. And, uh, you know, the airplane can, can do that. We fly from John Wayne Airport in Southern California, which of course has a, a short runway, uh, noise restrictions, curfews. We fly from that airport to uh, MCO to Orlando. And that's a market that, that hasn't been flown by a commercial carrier before because of the runway length and the stage length combined. And again, the 220 can do that uh, very comfortably. And so, yes, it definitely facilitates some of those markets. But it also doesn't mean that, that the opportunities that we see, and there are many, and I would say it's probably the majority of the routes themselves, if you look at the route map, you know, the 130 some odd markets are much shorter in length. And, and so the, the simple fact that the airplane can do it doesn't mean that we skew to that. We're going to do whatever we think the, the demand uh, would, would tell us to do. Startup airlines always evolve. Uh, the JetBlue today, for example, doesn't look like Neilman's original business plan. What have you learned in the early days of Breeze? You know, we're real focused on simplicity right now. So the airline launched with, with two aircraft types, the E-Jet and the A220. A220 was added last May. Uh, today, the E-Jet is primarily used for uh, our charter program. I think we're one of the largest, if not the largest, a carrier of NCAA basketball teams. And we did that really in our first full year of having a dedicated program. And then the 220 is largely used for, for scheduled service. We also had multiple seat configurations as well. We had two seat configurations on the 220. And then as the E-Jets had come in from other carriers, uh, there were slight differences in the seating configuration. So we're standardizing all of that. Uh, we're reducing the number of operational bases that we have that have multiple fleet types which of course that helps with parts and training and swapping airplanes and crew reserves and all of those things that, that drive complexity to the business. So we're really trying to streamline that offering both for our teams and operation, but also for our guests. So when they get on the airplane, they know exactly what to expect. Uh, and again, the overwhelming majority of the scheduled service now is on the 220. And that is more so true today than it was, of course, six months ago and, and 12 months ago when we launched it. So we're going to use this second anniversary in May 2023 really to emphasize that airplane. Uh, you know, it's got it's got first class style seats. You're, you're going to hear a, a branding of, of, of a name for, for that uh, for that seat. And, and that really will be the primary product for the brand. And, and we want to, to be able to emphasize that. You know, one other thing that I would mention around the, the 220 and, and the role that it plays, I think we have one of the most powerful current ESG stories in the industry. Uh, and, and I think there's two pieces to that. One is the airplane itself, the A220, of course, and I think this, is, of course, would be widely known, uh, just an incredibly, incredibly efficient and quiet airplane. But what we combine with that efficient airplane is varying our capacity really like, like very few would do. Uh, and, and to give an example of that, a Tuesday is about 25% as far as our, our capacity. It's about 25% 
of what we would fly on the peak day of week. So not 25% less, 25% of the peak day. And so we really vary the capacity so that we're flying when the demand is there. We're not flying around empty seats. And then when we do fly, we do it with one of the most fuel efficient airplanes. And so I think that's another one of the big benefits that we that we see today as this business is, is evolving to, to a primarily A220 for scheduled service. That's a great story, Tom. You mentioned in your background that you had worked at Allegiant and worked with Andrew, who's now at Avello, Andrew Levy. They started about the same time as Breeze. I know that you don't see the rest of the industry really as competitors, but in Avello's case, is it kind of a race to the underserved markets quickest, or are they really doing something different? Yeah, I think our primary competition is really for people's discretionary income and and time. Uh, I, I mentioned Huntsville earlier. There are a lot of people flying to Las Vegas from Huntsville today that just weren't doing it before. Uh, but because of the convenience that we brought, the great product that we brought right to their hometown, they're, they're now doing that. And, and 93% of the routes that we fly don't have year-round direct competition. Is there a bit of overlap with different carriers out there? Sure, but it, it's, it's quite minimal. And when you, you look at, at the type of airplane we fly, the type of routes that we're flying, we think the opportunity is just tremendous for what we uniquely are doing. You know, we're, we're building a nice carrier that's flying highly efficient new airplanes from small and mid-sized cities right to where people want to go. The fares are low, the policies are flexible, the technology is easy to use. I think all of that is a differentiator for us. And I think it's something that will drive people to want to fly with us. But really in the end, it's, I think a, a, it's, it's a competition for other things that they may want to do with their time and money. So pilot availability and costs have dominated a lot of industry talk. How's Breeze doing in that area? I think our team's done a really good job uh, attracting really highly qualified pilots uh, to the company. And and I think our value proposition is high as well. Uh, Our bases are in good locations, places like Charleston, Tampa, uh, New Orleans. People want to live in these places. Maybe they're already living in these places so they can avoid commuting to large cities, you know, the crash pads that, that they'll have. Uh, you know, shared rooms and other things. You know, the, they can avoid a lot of that being with us. Uh, I think there's a benefit to getting into the business now. Um, you know, there's an optimism about where we're headed. They, this is now David Nealman's fifth airline. They've seen the success that he's had in the past, and they're optimistic about what we're building. So if you can become number 300, 350 on the seniority list, and then X years down the road, there are a couple of thousand pilots that's a big deal for these pilots that are coming in. And I think that helps to attract them uh, as well. Uh, and, and with our growth, it's a, it's a faster path for upgrade for those that meet the qualifications. And that means higher pay sooner. So if you can come in and a much faster period of time, get to where you're earning captain pay, that's a really big deal uh, as well. We've been really transparent, I think, with all of our team members. We have very open dialogue and relationships where we're out in the field a lot. We do weekly calls with most of the team members and in their groups. I'm on a lot of those calls. David's on a lot of those calls. The rest of our senior team is as well. I think that goes a long way to keeping people once they're here. 
we've got a state-of-the-art training center in Salt Lake where we've got a couple of simulators that we operate on our own. We have a phenomenal training team as well that comes with a lot of history from other carriers. Uh, it, it just it, it feels different on our airplanes. And I think that for, for our guests and for our team members, it's an environment that they want to be a part of. Um, and, and then maybe the last thing I would say is I think we pay well. Our first officer pay is as good or better than what a lot of other carriers, I would say most of the other carriers offer. And our captain pay is competitive too. And if you combine that with the ability to get to the captain rate sooner, I think it's a really strong story. And I think the numbers and um, you know the, the low relative attrition that we've had, I, I think prove that out for us. That's so interesting. So you haven't, uh, haven't had to slow down growth any um, just because there's a, a lack of candidates. I think the, the limiter is less around candidates and it's more around the training pipeline. I think that's a, mm. a similar story that you would hear from other carriers. I, I heard mm-hmm. one carrier on an earnings call maybe six months ago talk about the fact that uh, if I get my numbers right, I think they were about 9% smaller than they wanted to be because of their training pipeline. So it's, it's really about getting those qualified candidates through training. Now, I'm not saying at all that there's not an overall shortage of pilots. I, 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 we, we see hundreds of regional jets on the ground now. I'm not making the case that, that, that the world is just flush with captains and, and that, that this is all just about training. Uh, there, there's more to this than that. But I think our story relative to the alternatives for where they could otherwise work uh, when it's looked at in totality, I, I think that, vo- that value proposition is high. Tom, I know Breeze is still too new to think about partners right now, but you've been around the industry for a while. Do you think the industry has seen enough consolidation or is there more that would be good for the industry? Well, the the big story, of course, that's out there is, uh, if I've got my numbers right, I think it's like the sixth and seventh largest carriers when it comes to, to passenger volume today. Um, you know, when you've got the top four that carry 80% um, and, and the sixth and seventh are having trouble getting together, that doesn't seem logical to me. You know, scale, scale matters in this industry and with the, the number of carriers that are, that are there, uh, certainly doesn't make sense to me that we're, that we're seeing some of the scrutiny that, that, that we're seeing with the, with, with JetBlue and, and Spirit. You know, be, beyond that, I guess, I guess we'll see. I, th- I think that, that there's always the potential um, you know, when you've got folks that, that do similar things and could benefit from having that scale, that, that there might be some perceived value from doing that. What's your thinking on um, what Breeze will look like 10 years from now? So we're going to be really methodical about the way that we build the business. We're going to focus on what we do well, keeping complexity out of the business, staying nice. And, um, you know, likely I think we'll be continuing to connect a lot of the current dots, the current cities on the map. Uh, There'll definitely be some new cities as well. Uh, We had an announcement, I think it was maybe two, two route announcements ago, about three months ago, where we had one new city but we announced 22 new routes. Now, not all of those routes were associated with that one new city, but it just tells you how much opportunity there is in the current cities that we're flying to. And of course, it's easier to uh, go to cities that you're already flying to and increase capacity versus uh, you know expanding in other ways. 
You know, that said, I, I do think there's likely some near international that would make sense for us over the next several years and, and ultimately maybe an opportunity for, you know, longer uh, flying. But I think in the near term, you're going to see us focused on what we do well in a methodical way, probably with a bit of near international, which isn't too much of a departure from what we're doing. We've got an airplane delivering basically one per month coming from Airbus, the A220. And that we've got about 70 more of those in the firm order today, plus options. Uh, if the Dash 500 version of the A220 were to become a reality, I think that could become an interesting part of, of what we're doing. You know, that's giving us a bit of extra gauge as we continue to, to move forward. But, but really, it's about focusing on what we do well, just delivering something that's consistent, predictable, this elevated product that we give to our guests that, that, that really is seriously nice. It isn't just a tagline. And, and you know, I, I think as we do that, we, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't be amongst those that have the highest margins in the industry. Our team is phenomenal from our senior team all the way to, uh, you know, the, the folks that run our guest empowerment team. Uh, to our technicians and our pilots and flight attendants and IT folks. I mean, it, it is across the board a really, really capable team. And I don't see any reason why we wouldn't find ourselves amongst those that, that have the highest margins in the industry as well. Well, Tom, this has been great. Any other final plug about Breeze you'd like to make? Well, we're, we're building something special here at Breeze. It's, it's unique. It's something that's really fun to be a part of. If you haven't had a chance to fly us yet, uh, we would love to have you come and fly us. Um, if you'd like to come work with us, uh, jump onto flybreeze.com and, and check out the jobs that we have as well. In the midst of what seems like uh, daily news stories about job reductions, here at Breeze, we are hiring. And so we would love to have great people come and join our very capable team. Uh, and Ben and Scott, I appreciate the opportunity to be here with the two of you today. I have tremendous respect for the both of you, and um, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you. Our pleasure, Tom. It's been great to have you and uh, look forward to tracking uh, Breeze's growth and success in the future and, uh, and checking back in with you from time to time of how things are going. Wonderful. Thank you to you both. And Tom, if you haven't already, I think you might want to trademark NLCC. Nice low-cost carriers, a great moniker. Love it. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Tom Doxey for a great interview. Well, Scott, we're getting close. Two weeks until Miami Beach. Have you got your sunscreen ready to go? We'll be on stage together for a live Airlines Confidential broadcast on the morning of May 17th. We'll be talking with Ted Christie, the CEO of Spirit Airlines, at Aviation Festival Americas 2023 in Miami Beach. Come see us. Airlines Confidential listeners get a special discount. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com and click on the banner and use AC50 to save 50% on your registration. There's no cheaper way to get into the festival right now. 
Really looking forward to that, Ben. It's going to be fun. And this week's mailbag is an interesting question from Caleb in St. Louis about stability and profits in the post-COVID airline business. Caleb says, Greetings, Ben and Scott. I've been listening for about a year, but I waited until I had a good message for your mailbag before I posted anything. I am a mathematical analyst currently working with the modeling and simulation of transportation systems. The recent rash of capacity reductions and large delay events has piqued my interest, and I thought I would share my perspective. As airlines release their first quarter results, it appears that a sea of red is about to wash over the business, despite strong travel demand. As discussed on the show, airlines are being asked to trim flight schedules in New York over the summer and are still facing delays with new aircraft deliveries and staff shortages. While the situation has been partially ameliorated since the beginning of 2022, airlines are still struggling to add back capacity in some markets. My thesis is that this issue is more acute in the short term than demand softening. Airlines have high fixed costs incurred from things like aircraft leases and labor contracts, namely pilots. And as these fixed costs are increasing with inflation and airlines are spending money betting on expansion, the ability of airlines to satisfy high demand by increasing capacity is limited by factors outside of their control. These factors include limited air traffic control and TSA staffing, new airplane order delays, the ongoing pilot shortage, and many more. In my opinion, Caleb says, airlines put the cart before the horse with respect to adding back capacity when post-COVID demand rebounded. Instead of waiting for the above critical support infrastructure to recover, they tried to push too many flights into the system, leading to lower on-time performance and forcing capacity pullbacks. It's important to note that most of the support infrastructure of which I speak is outside of the control of airlines. United has no control over how many air traffic controllers are at Newark or how many TSA screeners there are in Denver. The solution to the capacity problem and the conclusion of this brief analysis is that airlines should not have bet big money on fast expansion post-COVID. Airlines now need to work with federal, state, and local authorities to best tune their route networks to find an appropriate capacity balance. Federal authorities in the DOT also need to work with airlines and recognize the precarious position that federal staffing shortages and capacity constraints have placed airlines in, instead of merely chastising airlines for delay events. The national aviation system is like a clock. All gears need to work together to produce a desired effect. One gear can't be running at full speed if other gears are constrained. The airline versus government rhetoric needs to change if we want to thrive post-COVID. We need greater cooperation between major players if we want to create a stable, reliable airline transportation system. If these capacity issues persist, hopefully they won't, airlines could find themselves in a sticky situation, like a roulette player with everything on red watching the ball land on black. Ben and Scott, y'all are the experts. What do you think about mutual cooperation between airlines and government authorities? Is this a feasible goal or is the industry too cutthroat? Also, what do you think about the intersection of high fixed costs and the limited ability to service demand? 
is it a significant threat? It's always a pleasure listening to your show. Thank you for taking the time to answer questions and provide insight. You're truly inspiring the next generation of aviators and airline executives. Well, thank you, Caleb. You raised a couple of great points here. What do you think, Ben? Well, these are great points. And certainly, there's not an airline industry, at least in the U.S., without the airlines who are private companies and the government, which runs air traffic control, and local governments, which run most of the airports. So talking about cooperation among that group makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, airlines have taken the view that the FAA and other government agencies put limits on where we can and can't fly with things like slot controls and perimeter rules like we talked about at DCA. So if I want to fly 200 flights at Pittsburgh, it's air traffic control's job to make sure I can get the planes in there and Pittsburgh's job to make sure I have places to park the plane. That's a a very parochial view to take. And I'm not suggesting that airlines should be that, you know, self-centered. But air traffic control is a service the government provides and airports provide within a constrained resource, you know, gates, facilities, local control of things as well. So working together makes sense. But Given the fixed costs that Caleb brought about, the quickest way for airlines to recover from the massive demand drop of the pandemic was to get the planes back in the air quickly. They were paying for the planes, paying for the people anyway. So getting them flying and getting some revenue in for that was naturally what everyone should have expected they would do. Now, if the rest of the industry wasn't ready for that, that gets to Caleb's point that maybe we could all be better calibrated together. And that's a great aspiration. But I think in the short term, it's harder to think that the kind of cooperation Caleb is asking for is going to end up with anything the airlines would agree with, because likely what the air traffic control system solution would be is just put fewer planes in the air or fewer planes in this geography at these times. And that's not in the airline's interest. Am I thinking too much like an airline guy when I say that, Scott? Not enough like a public policy wonk? <laughs> yeah, no. No, I think you're you're absolutely right. I think the the scary thing here is we're already seeing that. You know, we we have slot controls at Kennedy and LaGuardia and Reagan National, um, but you could see a scenario where that starts expanding because um, the FAA is not keeping up with the growth in air travel. Um, in fact, the, the FAA may be falling behind, right? There, there is a big effort to 
hire and train more controllers, that may be coming at the expense of buying new equipment, um, which is is really frightening because the equipment's old to begin with. So we do have a problem there. We certainly do need more cooperation. Um, of course, the ultimate cooperation would be regulation, right? Would be the government saying, okay, you can fly here and you can fly there. And I don't think anybody wants that. I, I think what's missing from all this analysis is the time element. You know, one of the fundamental problems of this business is you put flights out for sale 11 months before departure. So you're, you're looking way ahead. You think you know what your staffing level is going to be 11 months in the future. But as we saw with the pandemic, that proved all wrong. Um, and not just for airline crews, but for airport ground workers and air traffic controllers and, and everybody else. The pandemic really highlighted, I think, one of the fundamental problems of the business, which is that things change um, between the time when tickets are sold and the time when flights actually operate. And uh, airlines had a really tough time with that. You know, workers uh, they hired didn't show up. Workers they thought were coming back after the pandemic um, decided not to come back. Uh, there were there were just a whole lot of staffing issues and training issues and all kinds of other issues that left airlines ill prepared for the travel surge that came. And you had one part of the company selling tickets like crazy and the other part unable to operate the schedule that was being sold. And we saw lots of problems across the industry with that. And I think that was sort of a, a uh, hyper example of uh, what goes on every year all the time at airlines. So it's, it's very hard. That's, all that is to say it's very hard to plan. And, and I think it's hard for uh, government and airports and everybody else to plan as well. It's great that someone like Caleb is thinking about the broad industry and how to fix it yeah. and is recognizing how important airlines are to the economic infrastructure in this country. Goods and people need to move for economies to soar. It is. And, you know, one of the things that I think would be great for the industry is if the industry could get better at forecasting demand uh, more, more accurately. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of room for improvement there, and, uh, and maybe mathematical analysis will help get us there. So hopefully we'll have Caleb and others who think like him joining our industry soon, Scott. With that, thanks everyone for listening, and we'll be back with you next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.